Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 62, A Final Crusade. First, I want to thank our two new Patreon supporters, or sorry, three. We have John Connor, Kiro Stajkov, and Bart Nadow. Thanks so much to all three of you. And I also want to mention something a little interesting here. Kind of a long shot, but I will be traveling from Beijing, China to Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan from May 5th to the 26th. So if I happen to have any listeners in Beijing, Pingyao, Tian, Urumqi, Almaty, or Bishkek, Get in touch. Uh, Probably don't have anyone listening there, but if I do, I'd love to meet you. All right. Last time, the Crusade of Varna got off to a good start before resulting in a defeat and retreat for the Crusaders. Still, they were set to get a good peace agreement and the reestablishment of Serbia as an Ottoman vassal out of the whole deal. But following an Albanian victory against an invading Ottoman army, the peace was broken, another invasion was undertaken, and the Crusaders were crushed at the Battle of Varna in 1444. Now, Hungary has briefly descended into civil war before their commander, John Hunyadi, took the reins as regent for their king, Ladislaus, who remained a prisoner of the Holy Roman Emperor. But first, let's get back to the ongoing Albanian insurrection. As mentioned last time, Skanderbeg has been consistently winning battles against the Ottomans, but these victories caused some problems. Venice had been consistently supporting the Albanians as a nice buffer between them and the Ottomans. But they hadn't bet on Skanderbeg finding the tremendous success he had found up to this point. And this worried them, and so relations worsened between Albania and Venice between 1444 in 1446. Things came to a head with an incident involving a drunken argument at a wedding and a dispute over Venice getting some territory when someone died without an heir. It's a long story. Point is, things escalated, with Skanderbeg and his allies demanding the territory from Venice, which offered him a payment to settle the matter, but he refused. And so in 1447, war broke out between Albania and Venice. Now, Skanderbeg moved against the Venetian possessions, which put Venice, which led Venice to put a price on his head. Venice attempted to persuade the Ottomans to invade Albania, a rather remarkable turn of events for a state that had just been using Albania as a buffer from the Ottomans literally years before this. But, well, Venice wanted Skanderbeg dealt with. In the meantime, things are changing fast in Hungary. Hunyadi is rising to effectively rule the state while Ladislaus grew up under, uh, well, grew up in the kind of care of the Holy Roman Emperor, put a strong military commander in charge of the state. Hunyadi wasn't willing to simply concede defeat to the Ottomans following the Crusade of Varna. 
Now, he had experienced tremendous victories over the past years and saw the defeat at Varna as a result of King Vladislav's premature and reckless actions during the battle. So he thought, okay, this, this idiot king got himself killed. He made a foolish move, but we could have won otherwise. We were so close. There's no reason to give up. But before Hunyani could get back at the Ottomans, he was busy exerting Hungarian influence in Wallachia. Now this greatly angered the Voivoda of Wallachia, Vlad Dracul, as he saw it. He had provided soldiers for the previous crusades and for his independence. You know, he deserved his independence for providing those soldiers. And that meant independence, not being a Hungarian vassal. Thus, looking after his own interests, he made peace with the Ottomans in 1446, returning Bulgarian refugees who had fled there after rebelling against the Ottomans during the Crusade of Varna. So, this is a quick little side note, during the Crusade of Varna, obviously there were some small uprisings in Bulgaria, but after that went disastrously, refugees, well, they went to the nearest place, which is Wallachia, right across the Danube. Well, now, these poor refugees were returned. We don't know what happened to them when they were returned, but probably wasn't very good. In 1447, Vlad Dracul intervened in a war for the Moldovian throne between a man supported by him, as well as Poland, against another candidate supported by Hunyadi. So this is a continuation of this conflict between Hungary and Wallachia. Now, that latter candidate, the one supported by Hunyadi in Hungary, eventually won. But the intervention further soured relations between Vlad Dracul and John Hunyadi. Around that same time, Hunyadi commanded some Wallachian nobles to give shelter to Vlad's cousin and, oddly enough, a pretender to the Wallachian throne. So Hunyadi's really escalating things. Now he's giving aid to a person who could overthrow Vlad Dracul. Then, just to Take it up another notch, Hunyadi unexpectedly invaded Wallachia to install that pretender, a man named Vladislav, to the throne. Vlad Dracul fled, but was captured and executed. The Hungarian-backed Vladislav was now in control in Wallachia, and Hunyadi referred to himself as the true ruler of these lands. So, obviously he wanted to put Vladislav in his place and not have him get any ideas that he could do whatever he wants. He was put there by Hunyadi and would do what Hunyadi wanted. That same summer, Skanderbeg defeated the Venetians at the river Drin. But while he was winning on that front, the Ottomans were invading at Venice's request. So Skanderbeg's getting these big victories, but ugh, fighting Venice and the Ottomans at the same time, well, that's going to be uh, quite an endeavor for him. Right after his victory, Skanderbeg turned around and headed to meet the Ottomans under Murad, who were laying siege to a city and fortress called Svetigrad, just north of Lake Ohrid, with a huge army. The Albanians couldn't hope to meet them head-on, and so they engaged in hit-and-run attacks, before attacking the Ottoman camp at night, being pushed back, but doing some pretty serious damage in the meantime. But in spite of all these kind of guerrilla tactics against this big Ottoman army, soon the walls were breached. But an infantry assault on the city failed, pushing the siege further into stalemate. Now, the son of the Sultan, young Mehmet, proposed that they abandon the city and move on to besiege Kruje. But the Sultan rejected the idea. Skanderbeg had to fight the Venetians again, while this was happening, and he was successful again. But 
In the meantime, the Ottomans were upping the ante. They managed to cut off the water supply of Svetigrad and finally forced the city to surrender. Now, this gave the Ottomans easier access to Albania. It wasn't just getting a fortress. It was getting a fortress which dominated one of the entrances to Albanian lands. And so they took advantage of this right away. They sent in an army, but it was quickly defeated by Skanderbeg. Now, with this loss by the Ottomans, the Venetians could see that, okay, they had lost to Skanderbeg twice. The Ottomans had taken Svetigrad, but lost several times themselves. It was time to end this war. And so they did that in 1448. But it really made little difference to the Ottomans. I mean, they didn't care that Venice got out. They were at war with the Albanians. They wanted to crush the Albanians, so they were going to go right ahead. So next they attacked Berat. Quick side note, I think I mentioned before, one of the coolest places I think I've ever visited. There's a thousand-year-old fortress on a hilltop in the middle of the city. Just a fascinating place. If you, ever, if you can ever make it to central Albania, check out Berat. But they attack Berat. Now, Murad himself, at this point, well, he's got some other problems distracting him. Because Hunyadi's aggressive foreign policy was continuing right on after his invasion of Wallachia. So, just because he managed to install a new voivoda in Wallachia doesn't mean that he's done being Mr. Tough Guy and running around making trouble. And now he's making trouble for Murad. So just one year later, two years after taking control of Hungary, four years after the disaster of Varna, you know, this is a very, very, very short period of time. Hunyadi, troublemaker that he is, he is gathering another army to crusade against the Ottomans. His plan was to engage in a surprise attack, which would catch the Ottomans off guard and defeat their main army in a pitched battle. And in the meantime, he would encourage uprisings of the various Balkan peoples. If it went well, in a single stroke, he believed Ottoman dominance in the Balkans could be broken. Now, a quick note here, why this is so remarkable. You remember last time I talked about how the utter defeat at the Crusade of Varna seemed to indicate that just like with previous crusades, it was highly unlikely that the rest of Europe was going to mount a major assault against the Ottomans again anytime soon. And that was true. It seemed highly unlikely. And that's why I said it. I knew this was going to happen, but I didn't want to kind of hint you too much that uh, another crusade was coming because I wanted you to understand just why this is so interesting and so special. And it seems to be really just a product of Hunyadi as a man that he was a military commander. He was the one leading Hungarian armies to all those victories against the Ottomans. And his belief that he could do it again led him to make what couldn't have been an easy or popular decision at the time and go ahead with yet another crusade so shortly after the last one. And so in September of 1448, the Hungarian army marched south and camped next to the Serbian capital of Smederovo to await the arrival of a German, Wallachian, Albanian, and Bohemian forces. Now, you'll notice first that Serbian forces were not included on that list in spite of where they're camped. Now, there are some conflicting sources as to whether or not Serbia was working with Murad II against the Crusaders, or just sort of indifferent to the whole thing, but really either makes some sense. Because remember, George Brankovic just had Serbia restored after losing it and becoming just a regular Hungarian lord. And so he was against the resumption of the Crusade of Varna 
And he's against this crusade because he wants to rule Serbia and he sees more attacks against the Ottomans as unlikely to succeed and more likely to lose Serbian independence once again. He wants breathing room. He wants Serbia some time to gain its strength and then maybe one day they can actually fight back against the Ottomans. But um, it's believed that if Brankovic was working with Murad, then he was the one who actually prevented Skanderbeg and the Albanians from joining the rest of the crusading force. And so they were out of this one. In retaliation, Skanderbeg engaged in brutal raids on Serbian lands. Still, eventually, Polish, Wallachian, and Moldavian allies joined the Hungarian army, which was now somewhere between 22 and 40,000 men strong. And so they marched south. They soon reached Kosovo Field, the, of course, famous site of a previous loss to the Ottomans. There, they met a slightly larger Ottoman force under the command of Sultan Murad. The first day of the battle began with the Crusader flanks attacking the Ottoman flanks. Now, they were successful until more Ottoman cavalry reinforced them and the attackers had to retreat back to their lines. Now, Hunyadi sent his center straight to the center of the Ottoman force, a direct attack. Now, this was successful as the Crusader knights broke through the Janissaries and actually reached the Ottoman camp. There, however, Turkish infantry turned them back. The retreat soon became disorderly as Ottoman forces regrouped and pursued the Crusaders. The Janissaries killed many Hungarian nobles as they fled. But night fell before the Ottomans could complete their victory. The next day, however, the rest of the Hungarian forces were finished off. Hunyadi fled, but was captured by the Serbs. Brankovic agreed to release him for 100,000 florins. And, of course, the return of some Serbian land and the marriage of his son and heir to Brankovic's daughter. These terms were agreed to, and Hunyadi returned to a now further weakened Hungary. Two crusades lost in just a span of four or five years. Obviously, Hunyadi now had to give up entirely on the idea of an offensive war against the Ottomans. The focus now had to be defensive, to keep Hungary alive and resisting. That same year, 1448, Emperor John VIII died in Constantinople and was succeeded by his brother, Constantine XI, who already had some experience running things while his brother had been off trying to secure aid for the increasingly desperate city. Now, Constantine had become despot of Morea in 1443 and had run the region on behalf of the Byzantines. The next year, however, he had conquered some territories of the Latin Duchy of Athens. Problem was, this was an Ottoman vassal, and so the conquest provoked an Ottoman invasion which had devastated the region. It really was intended to teach the young man a bit of a lesson. Constantine then had to pay the Ottomans tribute right along with the people he had just defeated. Now, Constantine was actually in Morea when he was crowned. It was no doubt a quieter affair than most crownings of Byzantine emperors, often a provincial city with the shadow of the Ottomans looming large. It wasn't until 1449 that Constantine even arrived back in Constantinople to take the throne. By this time, the city's population was a fraction of what it had been. But its population remained as defiant as ever, 
to maintain their pride and sense of themselves in the face of proposals to, for example, merge the Eastern and Western churches in order to bring more Western aid. Around that same time, 1449, Murad headed east to defeat Timur's son and the Karamanids. You know, he had trouble off in the east, just kind of like before. He figured, okay, the Balkans have been resolved for now. I defeated the Hungarians twice. The Serbs are on my side. Skanderbeg is a bit of a pain, but what's the worst he can do? Time to go deal with the son of Timur and these upstarts in Anatolia. But within months, he wrapped up things there and returned to Europe to focus his attention on that ongoing rebellion in Albania. So, you know, if anyone in the Balkans was hoping that the Sultan leaving to go fight in the East was going to be a respite, well, they were right, but for only a few months, a very brief time. It took him no time at all to win those campaigns. But yeah, now with Wallachia is sort of taken care of, no problems with the Wallachians, the Hungarians have been thoroughly defeated. Serbs are on his side. Albania square in his sights. He wants to crush Skanderbeg. I mentioned earlier that the Ottomans went after Berat after taking Svetigrad. Well, they were successful after a daring night attack and were now moving on the bigger price of Kruje, a much larger fortress. Now, these losses had previously had resulted in the previously stellar morale of the Albanians reaching a low point. But Skanderbeg spread stories of a vision of St. George and pushed morale back up as the next battle approached. In preparation for a siege, the women of Kruje and the children were sent off to cities controlled by Venice, and the city's garrison and provisions were reinforced. Edward Gibbon, the famous historian, claims that the Ottoman army which reached Kruje was 100,000 strong. Now, this is surely an exaggeration, but the point is this was a huge force. The Ottomans were deadly serious about putting down this Albanian rebellion. And it was especially a huge force, though, when you really compare it to the few thousand Albanian and foreign soldiers that were facing it in the fortress city. The Ottomans forged massive cannons specifically for this attack. But... The strong defenses, the extremely strong defenses of Kruje shrugged them off. But after four days, Murad successfully made a breach in the walls and sent his infantry to attack. But just like in Svetigrad, they were repulsed. In the meantime, just like Svetigrad, Skanderbeg conducted more dangerous raids on Ottoman positions, nearly losing his life. Soon, the Ottomans made another assault on the city, but again they were pushed back. Murad now had to decide what he was going to do. He decided to continue the siege and impose more precautions against raids by Skanderbeg, but it was no use. Soon the Albanians broke into their camp in yet another daring raid. No doubt the Ottomans were pulling their hair out at this point. Then, fresh provisions from Venice helped the city even more. But the Ottomans remained determined. They were not going to give up now. They offered Skanderbeg 100,000 crowns a year if he would surrender, but he refused. He then offered the city to Venice in exchange for aid in its defense. But Venice had learned its lesson with Thessalonica and refused. Finally, however, the arrival of winter persuaded Murad to turn around and go home. The city 
had somehow held out. The whole affair had lost the Albanians perhaps a thousand men, while the Ottomans are estimated to have lost as many as 20,000. In other words, it was a disaster for them. This victory brought fame and praise from around Europe, along with an offer by the King of Naples, Alfonso V, for Skanderbeg to become his vassal in exchange for military assistance against the Ottomans. Now, clearly Skanderbeg preferred the lighter and more distant hand of the Neapolitans to working with the Venetians, again, to maintain Albania against the Ottomans, and so, well, the deal appealed to him especially because Naples offered to give him more or less full autonomy. And so, Skanderbeg agreed, and he went about consolidating what he'd won in these wars against the Ottomans and the Venetians. But in the meantime, to no one's surprise, Hunyadi was at it again, going to war against Brankovic in retaliation for his imprisonment. The war lasted only a year or so, until 1451, the peace had Brankovic given 155,000 florins, but Hunyadi took all the border territories, which the two men had been trading back and forth for years, back to Hungary. So we don't know a lot about this war, but clearly it was a bit inconclusive and they just agreed to exchange money for land. And still, the feelings couldn't have been too hard because they finally went through with the plan to marry their offspring. But instead, Hunyadi's eldest son of Instead of Hunyadi's eldest son marrying Brankovic's daughter, they switched up who was marrying who, and it was the Hungarian lord's younger son marrying the granddaughter of the Serbian leader. Remember, it's the Middle Ages, so people are like, yeah, you, you can marry him, and he'll marry her, and yeah, they'll, they'll get along great, it'll be fine. Also that year, 1451, saw Murad finally die in the Ottoman capital of Edirne. He was a transformational ruler for the Ottomans. First, he injected a new religiosity into his role, portraying himself as Ghazi Sultan, a defender of Islam, far more than his predecessors had. This portrayal won him renown in Islamic regions as far away as India. But it also created a better framework for his many wars, whether against non-Muslims or against fellow Muslims who he could accuse of being apostates, for their actions. Historian Karl Brockelmann stated that, quote, in many respects, Murad's reign meant the end of the ancient culture of the Osmanlis, end quote. Going on to explain that, quote, what emerged was the Ottoman synthesis of various Turkish, Muslim, Byzantine, and even Western elements into a remarkably well-integrated state structure, end quote. Now, this is tremendously important. Whereas initially, the Ottomans were simply another Turkic tribe. Their culture was eventually formed out of this great synthesis. This was the reason referring to the Ottomans as Turks later on is, in my mind, totally inaccurate. Turks were the Anatolian peasants who spoke a Turkish language, but the elite, the Ottomans, the rulers of the empire, they were different. Their language was formed as a mixture between Turkish, Arabic, and Persian. They would have been offended if you had called them Turks. Nothing wrong with being Turkish, of course, but, well, that's how they saw Turks, as sort of dirty peasants, not worthy of their time. And so, 
you'll hear me really referring to them as Ottomans and not as Turks throughout this podcast because I think just they're distinct things. In fact, the modern country of Turkey was formed in direct opposition to the Ottoman Empire, regardless of what its current leadership is trying to kind of twist back and, well, revise history a little bit. Now, this whole transformation of uh, of Ottoman Turks into Ottomans, it's going to take centuries. It's a very gradual process. But we can clearly see that Murad was an important early catalyst for it, and thus a seminal figure in the making of the Ottoman Empire. With his death, his son Mehmed once again became Sultan Mehmed II, at a probably far better 19 years old. Right away, the young Mehmet set about preparing the Ottoman army and navy for his ultimate goal, an attack on Constantinople. While those preparations were underway, in 1452, a revolt in Austria and Bohemia began while the Emperor Frederick III was busy being crowned in Rome, with Ladislaus in tow. Now, by the time the newly crowned Holy Roman Emperor returned, well, he had lost this brief revolt and war, and he was forced to give in to many of the demands of those revolting, including, finally, allowing young Ladislaus to return to Hungary. Of course, the boy was still just 12 years old, but he was now finally crowned King of Hungary. As such, Hunyadi resigned as regent, but, well, he wasn't going anywhere. He was quickly appointed Captain General of the Kingdom and Perpetual Count. So his title changed, but he remained very much in charge while the young Ladislaus grew up. Now, of course, his power had been weakened since being captured by Brankovic and losing two crusades. He had been forced to sign peace treaties with various neighbors and factions, but he was still most definitely in charge. Now, interestingly enough, around this time, Hunyadi did offer military aid to the recently installed Emperor Constantine XI, in exchange for being given two Byzantine forts on the Black Sea, but he was turned down. Also that year, Hunyadi retook some Wallachian territories, with Vladislav retaliating by blocking trade. So, clearly relations must have soured between the two. I mean, Hunyadi had not so recently, it's pretty recently, installed Vladislav, but now he wanted more from Wallachia. It really showed how fickle Hunyadi could be. He was a man who demanded power and obedience, had some ambitions, and really wouldn't tolerate hearing no or letting anyone get in the way of what he wanted. Now, I mentioned Mehmed is preparing for an attack on Constantinople. Well, an attack like that takes time, lots of time and preparation. So during 1452, he began construction of a powerful fortress on the Bosphorus called Rumeli Hesar, or the Throat Cutter. It still stands today and is quite impressive to visit. Really, one of the coolest sites you can see north of Istanbul. Highly recommend checking out if you're in the city. I'm talking to you, Robert Peterson, but I know you'll see it. It was constructed directly opposite another fortress, which had been built by his great-grandfather Bayezid. And so together, they indeed cut the throat, so to speak, of Constantinople, preventing any ships from being able to reach the city from the north. While this construction was going on, Mehmed decided to take care of some unfinished business. He and his father had failed to take the Albanian fortress of Kruje, and, well, he had a little bit of revenge to enact against Skanderbeg. 
By April of 1452, Mehmed's intentions to launch another invasion were clear, and the Albanians were sent away, sent away for aid from their vassal lord, Alfonso V of Naples. Now, while Mehmed was off busy in the east, he ordered smaller forces of around 25,000 less experienced soldiers under a regional commander to enter Albania and, well, make some trouble. The force was split in two, and Skanderbeg made a lightning attack on one with a slightly larger force and quickly routed them. Their commander was captured and, after begging Skanderbeg for his life, ransomed. But honestly, how the Ottomans thought 12,000 inexperienced soldiers could stand up against a military commander like Skanderbeg with his hardened and experienced Albanian soldiers is a total mystery to me, but unsurprisingly, it did not go well. Shortly after, the remaining Ottoman force was similarly routed by Skanderbeg and his Albanians, with its commander killed. Now, aid from Alfonso never arrived, but fortunately for them, the Albanians had defeated the Ottomans without it, so it ended up not being such a big deal. Following this brief war, Skanderbeg made ovations to the Venetians, who had previously stayed away from helping him, with the attention of, well, maintaining good relations that they had had with the Ottomans at the time. So Venice at this point was more concerned with staying friends with the Ottomans than with the Albanians. So in the fall of 1452, Brankovic attacked a Venetian city and Skanderbeg helped defend it. So in a way, Venice is kind of being courted by the Ottomans and the Albanians. Both of them want Venice as an ally. But still, Venice stayed distant in spite of all these efforts. At least for now, they could rest a bit, having defeated an Ottoman invasion, the Albanians, that is. But surely, with Mehmet so focused on the massive undertaking of conquering Constantinople, and with Ottoman losses in Albania running into the tens and thousands over the previous decade, well, hopefully Skanderbeg could breathe without facing another invasion soon. Or at least that's what you'd imagine. We'll see what happens. Next time... We're going to see what Mehmet's next moves will be for Albania, for Constantinople, for Serbia, and for his own legacy. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. And as always, Uspech, or in English, good luck. <laughs>